It's an 87th Precinct side pod episode. Today we're taking a sidestep into the world of an alternative 87th Precinct, that of the NBC TV series, and in particular the episode Line of Duty, which was penned by Evan Hunter as Ed McBain himself. It's nearly Christmas, so I'm joined tonight by two of Santa's lesser-known reindeers, Mr. Stephen Bitey Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan the Eviscerator Brown. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. I think we can see why they're some of the lesser-known reindeers <laughs> there left in the shed. Of course, uh, the greatest gift you could give us this year is a rating, a review, or a share on Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, or Twitter, or wherever you listen or interact with us. We've got lots more stuff to come in the coming years, and uh, we're really grateful that you're on the journey with us. But before we get any further in, on the subject of being given gifts, we'd like to say an extra special, super massive thank you. We've already started opening our Christmas presents. This is our little Christmas show as it is. And the presents we've opened have come from our friend Stella, who has been along for the ride right from the early days of the podcast and has very kindly sent us some gifts. And they are truly, really appreciated so much. We have been gifted some permabook editions of some of the stories we've looked at, including Cop Hater, the very, the very first story, uh, Give the Boys a Great Big Hand and Killer's Payoff. So thank you so much, Stella. We truly truly appreciate that it's such a nice thing and it means that we can there was no planned book huffing for this episode (laughs) but now we can huff books we can yes thank you thank you very much for the uh the present of uh extra huffing well do you want to well shall i I get huffing really because um yeah the listeners might be interested to know we were a bit worried that uh well i was very worried that huffing might get canned from the uh (laughs) From the, the schedule, but uh, due to its immense popularity, it's back on <laughs> big style. So what, what, what year are we looking at for this, uh, give the boys the, a great big this hand? Huff, this particular huffing is uh, 1961, yeah. oh. so 47 years old huffing, 57. 57. Oh, it's quite sweet and uh, wood-like. Yeah. You think it's got a... Uh... Uh, an American tang to it, something missing from the no, British I edition. I don't think you could pin down a, a uh, nationality to that. <laughs> to uh, the smell of that, that smell. It um, it's very pleasant and quite um, yeah woody. A yeah. hardwood. A hardwood. What, perhaps mm. a, a, a cedar. Mm, yeah. Nice. So do, do you want? Me, am I huffing them all, or are we individually huffing? Well, you know what? It's Christmas. Let's all have a huff. I think you I'm gonna, have a huff. I'm going to take a little. Perhaps uh, it's why you don't like it on the schedule because I get to do all the huffing. Well, it's because of your um, powerful hooter. I'm going to dive into a 1956 cop hater right in the middle, page 64. Oh, it's just, it's, it's just nice. Mm. It's just nice. It's just a good book smell. Oh. I think Steve-O is going to do the second opinion. Yeah, less, less huffed than mine, despite its advanced age. Okay, well, let's see how I fare with the 1962 um, second printing of Killer's Payoff. Excellent uh, stuff. Oh, he's had to go deeply in. Oh, yeah, it's quite satisfying. I mean, I don't think I get as much from these as, as you do, Steve-O, but... Um... Ooh, that's, <laughs> that's quite... That's a bit... That's a bit perfumey. Oh, it's, 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 it's very fresh, very nice. Oh, Isn't it? That's good. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's more than acceptable, I think. Yeah, that's a... Well, Shall I tell you a, a secret about huffing? Go on. Whilst you can huff, you can't huff a cover, can you? Well, you could smell a cover, and it just—I don't feel, smell of anything. Don't feel it'd be right. Impossible. It? It's not got the—is it's not no. contained, is it? It's open no. to the air. Yeah, that's what that's I mean. Him. That's why you can't. Well, that's fair. I thought that would be a surprise, but <laughs> it clearly makes too much sense to be a surprise. <laughs> well, we didn't expect bleeding to be bleeding obvious yes. fact about huffing. Anyhow, we didn't expect to be doing that in this no, episode. But we are very grateful to have to no. have been given the opportunity, and also while we're here, then we'll we'll answer uh, Stella's question that she's. Oops. Sent us in a Christmassy question. So she's making Christmas treats this week. Layered mint fudge, saltine toffee, butterscotch haystacks and chocolate salami. My goodness. Sounds very extravagant. She asks us, what treats do you love the most at Christmas time? Well, I haven't heard of any of those things. <laughs> they sound wonderful. I don't know what a chocolate salami is. Well, I can sort of imagine, but... Chocolate salami? I don't know. What's your favourite Christmassy treat? I don't know. I always used to like the uh, um, chocolate coins in the... Um... 
Yeah, what, pretend like, coins. It, it, like giant two peas that are the size of yeah, like so they look like cho small chocolate orange. doubloons. Yeah, yeah, you know, just run of the mill things like that. Really. Well, it's I always get bought, bought a chocolate orange actually, which are a bit of a staple of Christmas. I would say. So chocolate orange is yeah. your staple. Mm. I'm trying to think. What about you, Morgan? To be honest, I don't have that much of a sweet tooth. So my, yeah. my favourite Christmassy things would be the more savoury treats, such as, for instance, pigs in blankets. Yeah. Can't go far wrong with a pig in a blanket. Also, it's the only time of year when people normally break out sprouts, and I do love a sprout. They're a great uh, winter vegetable, the sprout. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a massive sweet tooth person. Well, neither am I. I thought that was the question, though. But it is. Oh. And, but, and, yeah, at Christmas, you used to, particularly growing up, you used to get the Cadbury selection boxes Ooh, would always yeah. be... One of the presents you'd get, which is fine. I always just have a bit of chocolate in and some licorice. They used to have the curly whirly lengthwise, That's true, the yeah. length of the box, didn't they? Long curly whirlies. Mm. Yeah. Well, my story with those is because I used to have a false tooth, it's now a permanent cap, albeit a chipped permanent <laughs> cap. But my false tooth when I was young came out in the licorice of a selection <laughs> box one Christmas. Coincidentally, on the subject of curly whirlies, mm. I wonder if they have them in America, actually. Oh. Because chocolates aren't always the same, are they? Chocolate bars, candy no. bars. My first ever filling came out into a curly whirly while I was at the cinema in Scarborough watching Ghostbusters 2. Wow. I was eating it and I went, this curly whirly is crunchy. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> my filling. You do need some robust oh. teeth to uh, to handle the curly whirly. Especially if it's a bit true. cold, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I've just, just thought, actually, that one Go thing on. I should have mentioned, Trifle, which oh. I was reminded of oh, the, yeah. the other week. That was always a Christmas favourite. I haven't had it for years, but... Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of trifle. Yeah. Can't beat a trifle. No. It's a classic. Mm, very nice. And uh, Christmas cake. I do like Christmas cake. I can't, I can't say anything more than that. Lorraine makes a very nice Christmas cake. I could eat marzipan and icing sugar on its own, despite not having a sweet tooth. <laughs> but I do like a nice bit of Christmas cake, sometimes yeah. with a bit of cheese. Yeah. On the theme of Christmas, though, as I love um, uh, Christmas dinner, I had at the sandwich shop in Bootle uh, last week, they were doing uh, Christmas soup, which was like the ingredients of a, a Christmas dinner, sprouts, potatoes, mm -hmm. but like in a soup mm. format. Chunky? No, just like medium. Oh. And as lovely as a Christmas lunch is, this soup was absolutely disgusting. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it does sound it, like it, something It just doesn't might... lend itself to no. being blended. It's like what you'd imagine in about 50 years' time when I'm s stuck in a nursing home somewhere. And that's probably the format that one's... Christmas dinner will be given. <laughs> what a delightful thought. Yeah, so don't, I won't be looking forward to that I intend all. to stay healthy enough to be the one feeding you Christmas soup. <laughs> yeah, liquidised. Yeah, it wasn't good anyway. We'll probably still be doing this podcast then. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> if we keep delaying the, doing the books. But anyway, that was a nice start, wasn't it? Really gifts. It I feel very festive now. Yes, I mean, me too. There's the sound of jingle bells in the distance. It's been beautifully snowy in Liverpool today. It's not. It's rained <laughs> like a git. And uh, I've nogged several eggs. As you do. I don't really know what eggnog is, but what, you know, whatever. It's Christmas. <laughs> We're getting there anyway. The point of this episode is that during the making of the 87th Precinct TV series, Ed McBain, Evan Hunter, wrote three episodes, two of which were based on books, which was The Heckler and King's Ransom. And I think we talked about those episodes when we did those books mm -hmm. back in the mists of time. Even I can remember that just about. Uh -huh. But he also wrote an original teleplay called Line of Duty. Mm. And that was broadcast on the 23rd of October, 1961. I think in the UK it was broadcast in 1965 on ITV in the Anglia region. Oof. When we had re very regional TV in this country. It was always on on a Friday night after Emergency Ward 10 and before the news. Wow. Emergency Ward 10 was a... Hospital soap opera, which apparently ran for a long time. Imagine watching that in Thetford, <laughs> 1965. You'd have been... Oh. You'd have thought very yeah. exotic. Absolutely. Yeah. But what I'm, I'd like to do is I'm going to ask uh, the gentleman here to read two descriptions. So first I'm going to ask Steve-O just to read oh. the description from IMDb of the episode that we're discussing today. 
I so if you read right. that, so there's no spoilers because we're just talking about the episode. So. so all of this you've written here. Well, the bit from description from IMDb, please. All oh, right. Oh, description. There we go. Detective Burke Kling is deeply troubled after he's forced to shoot and kill uh, an 18-year-old who was firing at him after attempting to rob a theatre box office. Everyone who knew the youth described him as a good kid. Now Kling and the other detectives try to discover the identity of the boy's accomplice who escaped. That's a fair summation of the episode we've just watched. I would say that's a factually correct. A factually correct. That the 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 <laughs> the, uh, factually correct. the fair folk of Norfolk and Suffolk and South Lincolnshire would understand in the mid sixties. Yes. If they'd read that in the Radio Times or or TV, TV Times, Times as it would have been. Mm. Please ignore our rambling about regional. <laughs> television program. Well, they would have understood that. Well, basically, what I'm also going to do is ask Morgan to read <coughs> out a description of an episode of Ironside from 1968. Ooh. So if you could read from description from IMDb there, Morgan. Okay, let's see. <clears throat> Eve shoots and kills one of the two men involved in a jewellery store robbery. Stunned when she finds out he was only 17 years old and everyone that knew him says he was a fine young man, she questions her commitment to police work. After she tells Ironside she is quitting, he convinces her to finish the case and finds a way to help her regain her confidence. Hang on a minute. (laughs) They are more or less identical descriptions. And of course they have a more or less identical author because (laughs) they're both Ed McBain stories. So ah, he, he right. wrote Line of Duty for the 87th Precinct series in 1961 and he clearly recycled the story when he was asked to submit something for Ironside oh. in the late 60s, which is fair enough. Well, yeah. It doesn't appear in any other format. It's, it's sort of the lost 87th Precinct story because everything else is in print and was available somewhere or somehow, oh. short stories or whatever, has been located and is available somehow. Whereas this is a t- TV teleplay for a not very... Well, well, people know about the series, but not many people have seen it. Mm. So this is your lost 87th yeah. Precinct story. This is a book that could have slotted in about five five books into the series, yeah. something like that, it would have been. Perhaps, but, it's, it, perhaps it's something he had a bit of a genesis of a book on and never really... Well, I did have a look through the... Fleshed um, out into a full... Yeah, well, I looked through the, the archive listings, the Everton Hunter archive, and it does have... Several things pertaining to the 87th Precinct TV series. One is the working procedure for the TV show, which was 23 pages. I don't know if that's procedure in terms of police procedure or procedure for actually writing the show. Plot out Seven plot outlines for the 87th Precinct. So I wonder if some of the other episodes written by other people were based on story ideas by, Ah. by Evan Hunter. And then the script of Line of Duty which was 76 pages long, should you wish to know. <laughs> there is no evidence of a teleplay script for the Ironside episode called All in a Day's Work. So I have a feeling he probably just got out the other one, <laughs> got out his one from 1961 and just posted it off and said, just change <laughs> the <laughs> name. Yeah, change the couple of names. It pexed out, yeah. <clears throat> I thought you were going to say it was going to be some remarkable that Ironside was Steve Carella or something. Oh, all along. Along. There's a whole all other one. Was I was I inside an NBC program, NBC Universal? It might well have been actually. Possibly, yeah. Probably shot on exactly the same lot, <laughs> with a lot of co-stars and cast and crew. Yeah, if anyone wants to try and work out a <laughs> TV world where Corella's fate is that he becomes Ironside, <laughs> then Godspeed. Had a great theme tune, Ironside, didn't he? Yeah, he did yeah. Which I will now perform now. <laughs> Move away from the mic if you're going to do the shrieking <laughs> bits. Closer to the mic. <laughs> but anyway, some general background on Line of Duty, the episode from the 8th Precinct. As usual, the core cast is of Steve Carella, played by Robert Lansing, uh, Roger Haviland, played by Gregory Walcott, who features almost not at all in this episode. Buy some donuts, doesn't he? From Buy some donuts, yeah. Toilet or somewhere <laughs> like that. <laughs> Maya Maya, who's played by Norman Fell, who's brilliant, mm-hmm. even in his sort of... Sh- yeah, he's only in it very yeah, couple of bits. momentarily, isn't he? But the featured player is Ron Harper as Bertram Kling. Mm-hmm. It's a Kling story. Nicely, nicely. I start in speaking then. 
It's nice to see Danny Gimp appear as a character, yes. so the, the stool pigeon, played by Walter Burke. Monaghan and Monroe, the homicide detectives, turn up as well. But oh, do they? Well, do they? two characters called Monaghan and Monroe, yeah. who are homicide detectives, turn up and then are very sort of boring and then go yeah, away. Yeah, nothing, nothing like the. The Jokers. Yeah, it seems the... odd for an, an Ed McBain penned script that that was the case. I wonder, you wonder if sort of the TV producers didn't feel like that kind of line of humour would sit nicely alongside the killing of a teenager, or yeah, possibly. I and I think you might you might have hit the nail on the head with that. And also, there's a lot of plot to get into what's ostensibly fifty minutes. That's true. So if you then have three or four minutes of them bantering wits with the 87th precinct detectives then well as a viewer you'd be like what on earth was that all about yeah i suppose so yeah if they weren't going to be in every episode and be a feature or something like that but it's nice that they were there i must say though i found one interesting credit so the guy who played danny gimp was an actor called walter burke he's got a great face yes but he appeared in the tv series voyage to the bottom of the sea which is one of those adventure series i think i seem to remember that being on he was in an episode called Terrible Leprechaun <laughs> as the Leprechaun. <laughs> the Leprechaun whose name is listed as Leprechaun Mickey Moore O'Shaughnessy. Amazing. And also a Leprechaun called Leprechaun Patrick Moore O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> they both sound like fairly terrible Leprechauns. They do. So he's played two Leprechauns and a gimp in his <laughs> career. I think we should be clear on our use of the word gimp here. We're not... Well. It's it's the name of the or well, the nickname of the character who has polio and that has become yeah. his his epithet you know in his role as a stool pigeon. We've talked about him plenty on the podcast. Yes. We have. It's a very interesting character and is in the books for a long time to come. Not yeah. an, not an actual gimp. No. No. Um, yeah, I thought he was excellent actually in this uh, episode. I enjoyed him his performance greatly. I always wonder sometimes when you've got stool pigeons who actually turn up with the goods whether it's a way of saying we can't spend the time to actually show the police working this out, so we're going to have to get someone in to just move the plot on yeah. by saying, ah, oh, I've asked around and it's these people. Yeah. What did you think of the episode then as, as a sort of 87th Precinct story? What equivalent to or well, in comparison you like. to? Hmm. Could it have been a book? I don't know. You get the impression if you read it as a book, you'd find it a bit unbelievable in the respect of how much Kling's doing the investigating of yeah, I don't think an incident he's involved in. I don't know. I don't think it would have made a particularly sterling addition to this series if it had been a book, perhaps. I don't know. I think it would have been have to be one plot line in some... But if other... you think of what happened to, to Kling in the, the few stories in the, in the novel series mm. where... You know, he loses Claire Townsend, but he's still sort of involved in that investigation yeah. in some way. Clearly, it was in uh, Ed yeah. McBain's mind that, mm. that Kling, as a, a rookie cop, would have this sort of story arc yeah. going on. Yeah. So maybe. he's written this for the character of Kling in the TV series as well to give him something to to have a feature episode. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of look into sort of the... the the psychology of that side of, of police work, and that's obviously kind of the main point of the story, but I, I don't know if it, if it if it makes for the most compelling 87 Precinct story. And also it does, it's quite sombre in tone as well, which it, it didn't have as much of the, the kind of characteristic humour of the series, which it does come across in some of the other episodes, I think, but yeah. they've obviously deliberately downplayed in this one. Certainly none of the characters act out of character no. in compared with how they are in the books. Although I so thought... it's got that in common with the... It sits well with the characterisations, I would say. Yeah, although I did think that perhaps sometimes Steve Carella came across as harsher than he might have done in the book. It was quite sort of matter of fact. Mm. Obviously his idea was it was for the greater good of Bert Kling to be quite sort of strict with him and strict with Claire when she comes to see him and ask him for a favour and stuff like that. Mm. But perhaps it was a little bit more on the sterner side. Yeah, he, he, he I don't know. He can often be a bit like that because then he'll kind of go home and be brooding about it, won't he? Yeah. In yeah. the in the books. Yeah. yeah. Normally, um, yeah, he'll, he'll sit at home moping around, and then Teddy will tell him off, and then he'll realise he's been a bit of a divvy, and yeah, and they'll go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, I think I thought, but yeah, you know, perhaps why it ended up as a you know forty minute teleplay, and that it was a a plot idea he was playing around in that he could never 
find it fitting in with some other story that would yeah you know it's, make it be a full blown entry in the in the canon kind of thing it's certainly an interesting thing mm. about morals anyway it's about how do you react as a cop to killing someone and that someone being for instance a young person mm. and it as far as we well we know that he shot him well, we think fairly. It looks a bit like he actually shot him in the back yeah. the way it's filmed on screen. But uh, he was he was being fired upon. He did yeah. the right thing in terms of his the line of duty. Absolutely. There is some interesting stuff in there. It's quite dramatic. I like the fact that the, the hold-up takes place at a cinema that's showing Summer Holiday, <laughs> the Cliff Richard movie, I assume. So I wonder what the takings were like in 1961. Presumably it would have been quite popular then. Yeah, process yeah. Did it come out yeah. in 61, Summer Holiday? That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Was yeah. it a bit earlier? Mm. I should have looked that up. It'd be around then, because I, I guess um, Expresso Bongo was about 1959-ish, so that, that would probably make sense, would it? Yeah, something like that. We'll, we'll I'll, let... I'll, um, I'll have a bit my, of a look. my Cliff chronology isn't the absolute best, but... I'm glad you managed to say Cliff chronology in <laughs> first attempt, because even thinking about saying that <laughs> freaked me out a little bit. The only better thing um, that it could have been showing is if it was showing a carry-on film. Imagine and, uh, <laughs> showing Carry On Sergeant. Released uh, January 63. Oh. Oh. Summer Holiday. Summer Holiday, yep. So, what summer holiday were they showing in 1961 then? Mm. Summer Holiday, 1963 film. So, there's obviously different films. Damn. Rats. Uh, what, what year was. Well, the it was broadcast in sixty one, so it must have been something that was made in nineteen sixty. So you should have, I should have done this research, really. Well, there's nothing, Not wrong, like there's me, nothing wrong with. Uh, there's nothing wrong with. Live research, live, live, live without research. A net. <laughs> I bet the viewers, listeners, have no idea how I'm managing to do this. Nothing. Definitely have no idea. Yeah, he's got a stack of encyclopedias that she's very quietly going through at the moment. It's quite difficult to read them without wanting to huff them all. <laughs> uh, I can't find anything. Okay, we'll Noth- come. Nothing. Well, I'll see if I can here. find something additional oh. to that. Hmm, how odd. There's a mystery for us. Anyway, this lad's killed, and Berkling obviously feels bad about it. Monaghan and Monroe turn up, don't do anything particularly. Summer holiday, 1948. They won't have been showing a. F- oh, I don't know. It might have been on the universe because it's all filmed on the Universal backlot. Oh. So nothing it might have been there, there since 1948. That, or that maybe it's just then. totally made up. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Perhaps Cliff was trying to get funding for it. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we have, as usual, we have a few scenes in the squad room and we have scenes out doing the investigating. Oh. And a lot of it comes down to Corella. So although it's a, a cling episode, Corella's the lead investigator because he's the one who was catching at the squad room when the incident happened. So he has to go and see the mother of the, the child. And so everyone they meet says this kid is the best kid mm. that they've ever met. He's a great human being. <laughs> he brings porcelain cats to to sad ladies. Wow. He does, yeah. That's a bit of a strange scene because they go... They, they find this address in his wallet or whatever it is, and they go to see this this woman called Miss Rodale, who you can't quite work out what their relationship is. And it's it says something about the period with the, the rise of the teenager and the idea of how old is old. Because she spends her entire time going, I'm 29 years old. Like she was saying, I'm Methuselah or something. Yeah, this washed-up spinster... It has to rely on this teenager to bring her a porcelain cat. It's the only contact with yeah. the outside world she can possibly have at 29, yeah. having not married. Uh, what was the point of her character? Well, A, to demonstrate that he was a nice boy, so just... and B, to a sort of red herring, because we expect her to be the girlfriend, and it'd be a bit of a strange relationship, but she's not. She's just a crochet delivery, uh, crochet-making lady mm. who he delivers the beads to, takes the products from as part of this crochet company that he works for. <laughs> yeah, I think he earns as half as much as the uh, detectives. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, that's right. So he's still at school. <laughs> yeah, but we, he earns the half a detective's salary for working 25 hours a week um, whilst going to school. But he's very ambitious. Yeah. Very ambitious. 
Well, that's it. They all, all these people they interview say he was really nice. He was one of the nicest humans ever. And then they talk to his boss at the Crochet Bead Company, who's like, yeah, he's brilliant because he's ambitious and he understands the value of money and he wanted more. It's like, that does not make him sound great. No. Although maybe that's a bit of a upward thrusting American dream thing Absolutely. going on. Made him sound like a horrible person. Really. Mm. So it's how do we figure it out? You know, why does this nice boy, why is this nice boy now lying in the morgue? Because he That's got executed by the police. Oh, well, I suppose in in a novel um, we would have probably got a bit more of a feel for all these characters, and we might have actually got a bit more of a a sense of of how this this wonderful young man came to to turn to a life of crime. Whereas there's not really enough time to go very deeply into that in the. No. The space of that TV show is there? No, not really. And you don't get any comedy characters really in this. Not really. There's 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 the girlfriend who is she's quite amusing with her sort of relentless chirpiness and determined turning up of her hep jazz that she's listening to. What sort of thing was it? She's she's listening. Was it swing? I it's some really... kind of big band uh, kind of thing, isn't it? Um, which I, probably not really what contemporary teenagers were listening to in 1961, but. Yeah. It was probably what middle-aged men making TV programmes thought teenagers were listening to. Say, what's the the hip sound of today? Yeah. It's a bit like in The Blackboard Jungle, obviously, by Evan Hunter, where a lot of that is the the teacher characters bringing in his hep jazz sounds to play to his students to try and convert <laughs> them to to the cool sounds of this dangerous music, and it's sort of it's jazz. <laughs> Seems very strange from our modern perspective, but... Yeah, the, the girlfriend character is very interesting. Corella cons her a bit, though, doesn't he? He does, yeah. He's a bit naughty. A bit underhand with her. Yeah. yeah. But he was so he clearly so fed up listening to the music. <laughs> Robert Lansing plays that brilliantly, because he just sort of walks in and this stuff's coming out of the radiogram or whatever, and he's, you just see him instantly shrinking, like, oh, why? Why is she doing this? He keeps turning it down, she keeps turning it up. And then he has to make her sad while she's putting out some sandwiches. Mm-hmm. She says she's been off school because of the flu. And then she's handling cutlery, yeah. sandwiches. She's incredibly lively and very chirpy for someone who's been off with the flu as well. Yeah. <sighs> and she's very open about her um, relationship with Bobby, the dead boy. Not mm. that she knows he's dead at this point. She just sort of turns around to Steve Carell and is like, what do you think about kissing on the first date? Because I met him and I saw her straight away and I kissed him and it's... It's like, all right, all right, you don't know who this person is. <laughs> just me. Kids these days, those days, then. <laughs> yes. Well, I was going to say, shortly after his chat to her, the uh, the boy's m- mother turns up in the room. Um, oh, yes. And then the most alarming moment of the episode comes when it cuts to Steve Carella repeatedly shooting her in the face <laughs> at point-blank range with a revolver. It's quite... Yeah. Quite the rest of the episode, Corella's on the run from his own... Quite <laughs> shocked by that behaviour, really. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but then it, it turns out that's not happened. It's just a amusing way of which it had been cut. Yeah, so there's obviously a break for what would have been adverts, I imagine, after the mother turns up at the flat and Corella turns to face her. And then but as it cuts, zooms in on her face <laughs> and then it just cuts back to Corella just <laughs> repeatedly firing a revolver <laughs> at exactly the right height it would be. Yeah, it's a bit of a, a, a jarring little cut there that makes, yes. it gives you a bit of brief confusion before you realise actually Corella's just in the firing... Do they call them firing ranges? I don't know. Shooting, shooting practice range, alley? Yeah, shooting. yeah. Gun field. Gun pitch. <laughs> yeah, And I know her not. son has just been killed, but yeah, she's a bit miserable, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's, she's, she's not, not the life at all about that, is she? <laughs> no. yeah. I, 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 in fact, in her interview, she mainly just says, No! No! Repeatedly. Every time someone tries to ask us something, just, no. I don't think she says anything when she comes back to the house, does she? She just goes... No, she says, he's dead. Oh, she oh, yeah. she does, yeah. He's dead. He knows. Mm. He knows. He'll tell you all. Yeah, of course he says That's something, yeah. Don't listen to me. And then get shot. Pow, pow, pow. Mm. I think my other favourite bit is that later on, Claire Townsend goes to see Steve Carella in the squad room to ask him, to ask the lieutenant to bring forward some leave, some holiday days for Bert Kling. And he refuses to do so. But he says one of my favourite lines, which is Corella sort of says, 
Sometimes I wish I worked in a haberdashery. <laughs> of all the things you could think of off the top of your head, why a haberdashery? I'd like to imagine it's not off the top of his head and he actually genuinely does dream repeatedly of working in a haberdashery. <laughs> he was probably sad that he didn't get to meet the woman with the crochet beads because, mm. you know, he probably could have sold her a lot from his haberdashery store. Indeed. Haberdashery, yeah. Good the word haberdashery, isn't it? It is, yeah. I like it. There used to be a very good haberdashery in a boys' department store in Scarborough, mm. which I was too young to understand what it was, but it was a sort of exotic place full of mysterious fabrics mm. and things like that. There was a milliner's in there, in fact. A milliner's and a haberdasher. Yeah. Fantastic. And one of those elevators with the big slidey doors oh, across ah. the front. It was clearly a bit of Scarborough that was trapped in the past. A bit like Scarborough is generally. <laughs> I love Scarborough. It's lovely. It's my home, really, in my heart. Anyway, sorry, Scarborough. <laughs> ah, another thing I noticed. Mm. The TV series is set in New York. It's not set in Isola. Uh. Mm-hmm. But in this story, when Danny Gimp's talking about someone giving the info over to Steve Carella, he says he spent some time in Castleview. Uh. Castleview is from the books. Oh, yeah. And is the equivalent of Sing Sing. Yeah. So the the real world and the fictional world. old old habits die hard when he was penning that probably just <laughs> yeah probably because it is explicitly New York I think it's mentioned in some of the episodes yeah and, and so yeah so there you go that's a little thing there maybe that's m- another little thing that it was something that he had already prepared for the uh, yeah perhaps yeah, possibly yeah just like yeah writing it with his book a short story he'd written you possibly. know and then he just perhaps. Could well be. Yeah. Just every time anyone asks him for something, he just digs out the same thing, changes a couple of names. Corella, <laughs> Ironside, Cling, whoever, Eve. Eve. Yep. Yeah, I mentioned briefly before about the scene in the lab with the character who's presumably supposed to be Sam Grossman. Hmm. In fact, I think in some episodes he's listed as Sam in the credits, in others he's just lab technician. Yeah. And it's a it's Maya Maya's only little scene really, his comedy scene with the lab technician who's doing what they so often do in the books, which mm-hmm. is not find anything out useful at all. Just basically say, the one ev- the bit of evidence you've given us is one of the yeah. most common things in the city. I found out a tremendous amount about it, but none of it adds up to anything. Yeah, that's always quite good. So that's true to the books. But then Maya Maya nicks a fag, a cigarette out of, the, <laughs> out of Grossman's pocket and lights up in the police lab. That's just, I'm sure, even in 1961... <laughs> That they weren't smoking cigarettes in a no. lab where they were analysing things like cigarette ash. Yeah. Nah. Yeah. They'd mainly stick to a pipe, I think, in the lab. Just to... I would have thought so. <laughs> I would have thought Grossman was a pipe smoker. Is he? That sounds familiar. I can't think. Mm. Anyway. So it's interesting, and obviously it gets resolved on the evidence of, of what Danny Gimp feeds them and gets them to the right place. They get to... Um, Hassle a witness in the interrogation room at one point, which is quite nice. Mm. Strangle him with his tie. Absolutely. I'll stand around bullying him a bit. <laughs> and eventually get the guy who just confesses everything in an ambulance after Bert's frozen, can't fire his gun, but he gets shot. Bert gets shot. He does, yeah. And Corella lays out the, the baddie, who then in his... Presumably death throws, I would imagine. They normally die after confessing in the books anyway, don't they? They tend they? to. He, he seemed to be doing all right. I think he was going to make it. Yeah. I think he was going to pull through. He, he certainly had enough energy left to, to be a bit of a tough guy, didn't he? He was trying. But he was basically saying they had like five grand in the bank from mm. all these robberies. So Bobby Matfield wasn't the angel that he was made he out to He'd be. He'd been on quite a spree, hadn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, he was a baddie. was. But it ends with a very nice moment of cling turning to Corella and saying, let's go back to work. Excellent. Then they put the hats on. and Yeah. I suppose that's one of the best things about this, is it's a lot of good hat acting in this. Yeah. Everyone's wearing hats. Kling loses his uh, during the shooting incident. I think it's probably run over by a taxi in the background uh, later on. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, because the hats don't get much of a mention in the uh, the books, do they, really? They go without saying. Yeah, I mean, once in a while it's mentioned that Corella's hatless like that. That is the thing that needs to be commented on. It's assumed that otherwise everyone's wearing a hat, (laughs) as was the style at the time. Hmm. It's it's a, not a bad episode of the TV series. Hmm. It, it as you say, it's a bit somber. It's a bit dark, yeah. but 
But it's interesting that it's an Evan Hunter penned oh, episode of, yeah. of the thing. Because the episode that was King's Ransom, I rem- remember being very good, even though it was a sort of curtailed plot. Yeah. And the, the Heckler episode is very good as well. So he clearly felt protective over the deaf man as a character. How far into the television series was that then? That was only the fifth episode. Oh, right, mm. okay. So, pretty new. Mm. And I watched, if you buy the box, the DVD set of the 87th Precinct TV series, it comes with an interview disc with Ron Harper, who played Burt Kling. And it's a lovely interview. He's still alive, Ron Harper. He, he was working by the looks of it up until a couple of years ago. And I, I found the bit about his work on the 87th Precinct. So it was Ron Harper's first regular TV series role. He'd done a couple of films and like guest spots in, in things. He was a very young actor. So he was saying about how good Robert Lansing was at sort of encouraging him as an actor and giving him tips and hints to help him. And also how he became friends with Ed McBain and they were friends for the rest of, of McBain's life. And McBain had said, I wrote this episode to showcase Kling. So I assume he'd, I would have got the feeling that he would have written it before the show was cast, but it sounded a little bit, Ron Harper seemed to be suggesting that perhaps yeah. they'd spoken and said I need some. So I don't know. Yeah. But it's lovely if you get that box set and you get that interview, it's worth sitting, it's about half an hour long. It's, it just seems like such a nice guy. Yeah. And there's a lovely little sequence as well on that disc where he just goes to his 87th Precinct scrapbook which has got copies of press cuttings, photographs, uh, copies of the comic as well, because that was based on the idea of the TV show. So it's lovely. That's worth worth digging out. Yeah, because as an actor, he, he's not far from my mind's eye of Berkeley. Oh, he's exactly. that he's kind of his like, demeanour and his looks are really quite well cast, accurate. Yeah. yeah. Well, he did actually get asked another question, and it's from our friend at the Trial of a Time Lord podcast. And he was asking again about who would you cast in a modern, <laughs> a modern remake? And I think we we we're still deliberately not committing to doing an episode about that yet because it's so hard to do. But it's always a discussion that's going on. So we do like seeing people's suggestions about who you'd cast. He did say specifically who would you think would be good as a deaf as the deaf man, not as a deaf man. <laughs> who would you just cast as a deaf fella? But I think it is interesting when you come across someone like. Ron Harper playing Burt Kling in this TV series. I agree. He is like, I imagine, Burt Kling um, to be. He's sort of young, fresh-faced, blonde. Clean cut, kind of, yeah. And I said blonde. A little bit naive. Kinda, I did say yeah. blonde and not Bond then, didn't I? <laughs> bond, yeah. I, I feel like I said Bond instead of blonde. It wasn't James Bond. And so it's weird when you get that lodged in your head. Uh, I'm a bit the same with Robert Lansing and Steve Carella as well, yeah. just because he looks so much like McBain's uh, description of him. yeah. I think um, Norman Fell, although physically doesn't uh, resemble uh, Meyer as described, I think acts the part very much as I imagine. Yeah, me too. Meyer to to, to be so. Uh, yeah. It's it's some some excellent casting there, really. It is apart from Gregory Walcott as uh. Roger Haviland, who they clearly felt they couldn't make him a, a, a tough cop and uh. a, a bad cop because he. The dynamic of the show, try to sell that when the four you've only got four lead characters yeah. and have one of them be an absolute bastard, who <laughs> would be mm. a bit of a strange thing. So instead, he gets a bit sidelined in most of the episodes. He's just yeah. a bit of the boring one, isn't he? Yeah. As a With his strange accent and regular overdubs to try and make him <laughs> comprehensible at any time. But yeah, sorry, Trial of a Time Lord. It's not something we're going to go too much into and try to trying to cast a modern thing because there's just so many options. Mm. And as we've said before, I think sometimes left field choices are the ones you want, mm. really. See, that's why Jodie Whittaker's so good as Doctor Who. She's been brilliant, even if some of the stories have been a bit, a little bit, mm. I'm not going to go into that either. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed this series. As we finish up then, having talked about that, I thought we might... Well, we should rate the episode like we do. Because of all the side pods we've 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 given a rating for. Mm. So we have to choose a unit to rate it on. So normally the books we rate as police shields mm-hmm. of 100. So what's a unit of measurement we can invent for this we, one? We could either have the the jelly donuts that get oh, bought yeah. <laughs> in about 10 seconds from from Roger Havilland leaving, leaving the office. Could have hats. The magic donuts, yeah. You could have hats. 
Couldn't you? You could have porcelain cats, maybe. <laughs> or sort of crochet beads. Oh, right. Take your pick out of any of those, Paul. They're very good. They're very good options. Yeah. I think crochet beads would be my choice. Okay, got right. Yeah, I think that's so... Uh, we need to rate it as an object in and of itself, not as in comparison to the, the books or anything mm. like that. As an episode of the TV series, and as an as a episode of TV, I would say it's not too bad, but I wouldn't go above granting it... What, so the, the best thing I've ever seen on TV is well, 100? No, not necessarily. I mean, just in and of itself, of that type of thing. Hmm. You can't compare it to the best thing you've ever seen in your life. Well, I'm... Um, um, um. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's it's an, it's just arbitrary rubbish. Right. Just go with it. No, you, you can't score things. No, you, you, right, okay. Well, I, no, I was going. My instinct was it was a sixty-eight crochet beads hmm. value for money. Fair enough. So, what do you think, Morgan? I'm not feeling too far off that myself. I might go a little lower, maybe a sixty-two crochet beads. Oh. Wow. 62 crochet beads. So this is... I'm, I'm Just... judging this relative to itself. And... Just go with your instinct, man. I'm going to go... Do what you feel. I'm going to go um, 59 crochet beads. 59? Oh, gosh. I'm just going to feed that into Kenneth. I've had to change well, this mechanism to, yeah, to cope to, with this. You, you have to I feel we'll be... Recalibrate him. We'll be sweeping crochet beads out of his insides for, for some we're, time. We're round to the nearest 10,000 upwards, though. So well, this time we don't 10, have to 000. do any rounding at all because Kenneth returns a value of 63 crochet beads as the score for Line of Duty from the 87th Precinct TV series. I think that's fair. I think that's fair in terms of right, ranking something in terms of itself. crochet beads. And itself with no comparison. How it's would that system. compare to? How would that compare? How would you score it if you were scoring uh, porcelain cats, though? Higher, oh. higher or lower? Oh, I don't know. It's Morgan, the unit of be, measurement you, shouldn't you change the outcome. Or, well, uh, I, I think it's got to. It's difficult to say, though, isn't it? Because obviously, porcelain cats are always out of twelve. So yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a whole different ballgame, really. Yeah, I think you got to be higher, isn't it? <laughs> Just for reference, if you go to our blog, you can find the Kenneth archive, Kenneth being our computer who calculates every number nearly every time, honestly, where we track our scores for the books, but it also tracks the scores for the side pods we've done, Oof. where I've done with special guests, for instance. So with Star Trek Assignment Earth, which was between me and Adam Paxman, our friend, who, I must say, during the course of watching the TV episode before, sent me a message that he and his wife are expecting a baby. Oh, congratulations. So That's congratulations fantastic. to Adam and Anna. Excellent. A little, a little Paxman in the world <laughs> soon. But we gave Star Trek Assignment Earth a very low rating based on the units of Star Trek communicator shields okay. or, you know, communicator badges. Yeah. High and low got a very high score and we gave I that in, in terms of simple police badges because it's a police story. Uh-huh. What do we give that? That was something like ninety or something like Good. that. Good. Well, oh, yes. so it seems right. Reasonable. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with sixty-three then. Now. In car, which I watched with Lorraine, which is the Bollywood adaptation uh-huh. of of High and Low, was awarded in Indian CID police warrant cards. Okay, <laughs> got about seventy-six. Yeah. Uh, the Young Savages, which we all watched together, we rated it in Switchblades. Oh yeah. And what did Actually. that get? About seventy-three. Oh well, I think we, well, I think we're yeah, fine, we think, aren't we? We're, we're um, right on yeah. track. Really. And we did, and oh, I did the birds with Herb West from the Trial of a Time Lord podcast. We rated it in splodges of guano on a police sheriff's car, <laughs> and that only got fifty. Fifty. Well, it was due to the nature of the conversation. Oh right. Listen to the podcast, Stephen. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah man. Learn something. Yeah. Well. <laughs> So this is fair enough, and I'll add that to no, no, I think that, that stacks up. I'm, yeah. I'm more relaxed now okay. about the uh, crochet beads. <laughs> okay. I'll sleep easily. I thought we might finish up. I wondered if anyone had any... A song? Oh. <laughs> well, well no. I'll get the guitar out in a minute. If anyone had any general book recommendations, off, you know, end-of-year book recommendations outside of... The 87th Precinct. Oh, I've definitely read a lot of really good things. I'm trying to remember what any of them are now. 
Um, well, I've got one that I'd like to recommend, and that is a book called All the Answers by Michael Kupperman. Michael Kupperman, as some people may know, is a cartoonist primarily, or an illustrator, famous for doing Snake and Bacon's Cartoon Cabaret, uh, and a load of other absolutely wonderful, brilliant, weird stuff that just suits my sense of humour down to the ground. But All the Answers is ostensibly, it's part autobiography, but from the view of actually being a biography of his dad, who... I don't want to give anything away in this, but his dad was one of the quiz kids who was very famous on TV when he was very, very young. And his position in sort of American history is really, really fascinating. He was held up as sort of this icon of bright youth. And it's really, really interesting, very personal, very moving. It's not, a, it's not done as a graphic novel per se, but it is illustrated. And actually, in terms of the illustrations and, and Kupferman's style, they're fairly simplistic, but they really support the story. And it's really, really interesting. I rec- So that's my recommendation of a really interesting book. So there you go. Get it. I bought it in New York as well. Fantastic. Like a good lad. Morgan? Um, I, I think probably the, the most notable thing that I've, I've read this year that kind of made a, a bit of an impact, even though I couldn't actually remember what it was called just a moment ago, um, <laughs> was um, 2666 by Roberto Bolaño. I think I did mention it um, oh, yes, yeah. at another point, but that, that was pretty staggering. I mean, it has elements of, of a crime novel, but it's, it's a lot more than that. It's sort of a, a fairly giant sprawling kind of metaphysical odyssey but it's 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 metaphysical odyssey but but really readable much more readable than i just made it sound in that (laughs) description well we have talked about it before i seem to recall i may even have added it to our recommendations list on our blog so uh that's a corker also at the moment i've just got about 50 or 60 pages into uh, the city and the city by china mayville I've never read any of, of his work before, but that's uh, shaping up to be really good. Mm. It's kind of a, a police procedural, but also a bit of a, a hint of a Georges Louis Borges kind of um, paradox. You're really going time. all out on the metaphysics here. Yeah, well, that, that, you know me. I quite enjoy a, a bit of uh, a bit of that stuff. So it's it reads very much like a, a, a police procedural, but it's also completely nuts. Yeah. Sounds good. Steve-o? Well, yeah, I've not had a huge amount of fiction this year. Um, I did very much enjoy earlier in the year John le Carre's Legacy of Spies, which That's is his... most recent one. Yeah, and one which he brings back a lot of the old characters, and he's written at such a time that all the characters must be about 90 years old mm. and therefore doesn't really make any sense he's, if he's, you take things too literally. He's retconned um, a few of those characters already, though, hasn't he? I think, yes. Like, definitely in the, the sort of later Smiley books, people have got slightly different... Yeah, well, um, he's done a bit of an Ed McBain and not truly... He's kind of moved... Yeah, slightly the goalposts. The characters have stood still, the world's moved... A little bit, yeah. Not as not as obvious, because they are older, older. So, yeah, I very much enjoyed that, because I do a um, big fan of Le Carre. But, uh, yeah, no, I've spent a lot of the year wading through a uh, a huge book uh, about the, the history of Latin America, which is very interesting. And at the moment, I am uh, reading a book called The Crow Girl by Eric Axel Sund. We also talked about that a little while ago. Yes, yeah. which yeah, I was started then, or I was just about to start, and I'm yeah, <laughs> know, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit heavy going, really. Well, Sorry. not heavy going because it's not heavy going. It's just uh, yeah, it's not really pulled it's clearly, me in. It's yet. clearly troubling you. I can see well, it on your face. It's not yeah, it's not really pulled me in oh. thus far, and I kind of wish it had really. Because I feel like I've read too much of it now to stop. Yeah, I hate that feeling when you you just feel like you need to finish a book because you've read a lot of it and you feel obliged to get to the end, but you're not really enjoying but it. Anymore. Sometimes you can feel like that with a book. Sometimes for quite a long time, then all of a sudden, and then by the time you finish it, you're like, holy shit, that was great. Actually. I've, my um, experience with some Neil Stevenson books is that sort of thing. They, Yeah, they, they can take a bit of work, but it's normally worth it, isn't Definitely, it? Definitely, yeah. Um, same with the, the, the likes of Gene Wolfe too, whose books can quite often start out like a, a, this impenetrable riddle and you think, I think a lot of people do give up on them, but it's always worth staying the course. Yeah, it, it is translated as well and you just you wonder 
sometimes where the like the actual translation mm. can yep. tinker with the pace a bit, really. But um, no, I, I will stick with it. I will stick with it certainly. So then, yeah, no amazing ground shattering. Hopefully, yeah. two thousand and nineteen, I'll be uh, full of them. I'm sure there were some earlier in the year, but I've got a terrible memory, as we all know. Well, we're all getting so old these days. Very old. Over 29 years old, you might as well be dead. Well, absolutely. I mean, if that's it, all from the TV series. Someone should take out a collection and buy us a porcelain cat. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, I can tell you a book that we will be reading very, very soon, and that's 80 Million Eyes by Ed McBain. Ooh, yeah. And hopefully, we'll be bringing you that before too long. I'm hoping to. Sneak in another bonus episode uh, between now and then with a guest. More news as it happens, but soon enough. Otherwise, I think it's time for us to take off our Christmas party hats, fold them neatly and slide them back inside the crackers <laughs> and put them away until next year. No, we've still got Christmas to go. Even Our party has definitely started, though. Thank you again, Stella. Yes, thank you very much. Woo! Thank you. I'm going to say... Goodbye and Merry Christmas, goodbye and Merry Christmas. Merrily goodbye. <laughs> yes, Merry Christmas and fairly well. <laughs> <laughs>